Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 31 Pendragon. After three weeks of exploring games in various categories and giving you some holiday purchase ideas, today's episode has only one game, but I still recommend it highly if you're looking for a game to play. That game is Pendragon. Pendragon, also known as King Arthur's Pendragon, depending on the version of the game, was designed by Greg Stafford and originally published by Chaosium in 1985. This initial version of the game came as a boxed set with several smaller, in size, rule books contained within, which was becoming a sort of standard in the industry at the time. Now, we'll get more into the gameplay of both this and the subsequent versions in a little while, but first let's look at the reviews and awards won by the first edition of Pendragon. In the December 1985 issue of White Dwarf, Graham Staplehurst said that Pendragon, quote, looks to be one of the best systemized role-playing games around, end quote. He liked the fact that it used a background, Arthurian legend, that was basically known by most players, and he applauded the creators for their research into the timeline. He further noted that the character generation system was adept and gave the game a rating of 9 out of 10, stating that, quote, I would not hesitate to recommend the game to any role gaming aficionado were it not for the dreadful price. End quote. For the record, that dreadful price was 26 pounds. White Dwarf is a UK-based publication, and 26 pounds in 1985? Holy crap. In the March 1986 edition of Dragon Magazine, number 107 for you collectors out there, Ken Rolston said that in subject, mechanics, and presentation, it's the best designed, most attractive, and most effective traditional role-playing game I have ever seen. The rest of his review is equally glowing, but I wanted to note that this highly positive review came in the pages of a magazine published by TSR. You know, the people that were publishing Dungeons & Dragons. Has to suck to have one of your employees hyping another role-playing game from another company so highly. Hmm. For the record, that would be like a DC Comics writer reviewing a Marvel comic and talking about how much more superior it is to DC product. Then again, in quite a few cases, that's actually the case, but I digress. In 1986, a supplement for this edition, the Pendragon Campaign, won Best Role-Playing Supplement of 1985. Now, sometime between 1985 and 1990, Chaosium planned to release a second edition, going so far as to begin what's been termed a slight adjustment to the rules. However, this edition was never released, and some believe it was due to the high praise and equally good sales the first edition was still experiencing. However, Chaosium did eventually get around to modifying those rules a bit. Greg Stafford was tasked with editing his previous works into a single softbound book, which became the third edition of Pendragon. Yes, they called this one third edition, even though the second edition was never released. Don't ask me why some of these creative types do this. It's the same thing as Doctor Who technically having 14 doctors, but they're calling the most recent the 13th. We are trying to apply logic to an illogical situation here, kids, so let's just move on. 
As with the previous edition, sales continued to be consistently solid, and Pendragon, though never the number one selling game, continued to amass a large following of dedicated players, primarily because of the fact that this game continued to have a more realistic feel than D&D and other sword and sorcery type games. In fact, through two editions of the game, there wasn't really any magic to speak of in the games. Any magic that happened basically was supposed to be happening off-screen by non-player characters. And the whole idea was to keep this game grounded in some semblance of reality. In 1991, 3rd Edition won Best Role-Playing Rules of 1990 at the Origin Awards. In 1993, Chaosium dropped the 4th edition of Pendragon. However, in 1998, they lost the rights to Pendragon due to having used the game rights as collateral for a loan from Peter Corliss. Corliss took the rights and formed his own publishing company, Green Knight Publishing, in order to continue publishing the game he just acquired. His first order of business was to do a reprint of the 4th edition with the Green Knight logos on it, and this version much like the Chaosium version, continued to make bank. Now, there were some differences in 4th edition. One of the largest was that there were now rules for advanced character generation. Previous to this, it was expected that everyone would make new, lower-powered characters at the game's start, and those characters would gain power and experience through gameplay. However, at some point during 3rd edition, Chaosium had released a supplement called Knight's Adventures, which had proposed the ability to create characters with greater abilities so that larger, grander adventures could be attempted by players earlier in the campaign. Or, more to the point, so that campaigns could be shorter and therefore more attractive to those who didn't necessarily want to be running the exact same campaign and characters for several years. And yes, there are players out there like that. The other big change to 4th edition was the inclusion of rules for player character magicians. Remember when I said a little bit ago that magic wasn't really a big part of this game early on? Well, again, it was so true during the first two editions of this game, the only magicians were really NPCs. 4th edition changed all of that, and there were some who believed it wasn't for the better. Green Knight also took the opportunity to release a streamlined version of the 4th edition rules, read, cut down, and simplified, that was aimed directly at beginning players. This title was called The Book of Knights. Andrew Realstone reviewed Pendragon's 4th edition for Arcane Magazine. He gave it a 9 out of 10 rating and stated that, quote, Every rule and every bit of background meshes together to produce a game in which you can't help but think and act and even feel like one of King Arthur's knights. Running a full campaign and seeing the young squires from the first session growing up to be the veterans in the final battle has been one of the best experiences in my role-playing career. And, contrary to popular belief, you won't have to push the pram a lot. End quote. Uh, for those who don't know, a pram is what our British friends call a baby carriage or stroller. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here. In 1996, about 10 years after the first edition had been published, Arcane Magazine published its poll of the top 50 role-playing games of all time as selected by its readers. Pendragon was 12th in that poll. Arcane's editor, Paul Pettengill, stated that, quote, Pendragon is a game with a huge amount of charm. 
It's extremely character-oriented, and so players have the opportunity to spend time developing a separate persona rather than having to deal with too much action. It has intrigue and complicated plots, but these are geared around the characters instead of merely being an excuse for the characters to do something. End quote. I praise for Pendragon, and if I'm not misreading this, a shot or two at Dungeons & Dragons. So good on you, Mr. Pettengale. In 1999, Pyramid Magazine named Pendragon as one of the Millennium's most underrated games. Editor Scott Herring said that, quote, Pendragon is one of the few RPGs that has a moral point of view. And it's a great melding of game system with game world, end quote. Oh, and a quick FYI, Green Knight's version of 4th edition carried the title King Arthur Pendragon, just so I'm being historically accurate. Another thing we need to discuss, if we're being historically accurate, is the fact that Green Knight Publishing sold the rights to Pendragon to White Wolf Incorporated in 2004. White Wolf did not waste any time. They brought Greg Stafford, the original designer of Pendragon, into the fold and tasked him with creating the fifth edition of the game. That edition was published by White Wolf in December of 2005. Again, sales were solid for the game, and as had been the case from the beginning, multiple supplements were released. One of these supplements was the Great Pendragon Campaign, which is a 432-page hardcover scenario book detailing events, adventures, and characters from Uther Pendragon's reign in 485 through to the end of the Arthurian era. Now, it might sound like Uther Pendragon was a guy that was invented for this game, but if you're a history geek like me, you know he was a king of sub-Roman Britain and was the father of King Arthur. So yeah, King Pendragon actually existed. So did Arthur, though we have to acknowledge that his reality probably wasn't nearly as cool as the legend states. Okay, let's take probably out of there. I mean, I'm pretty sure he didn't pull a sword out of a stone and he probably didn't hang out with a magician. But as the saying goes, when the myth's cooler than the facts, print the myth. Getting back to the supplement, this was a huge moment in gaming. As a campaign supplement, this size was practically unheard of. And I've read accounts from folks who said that playing through it took the better part of 10 years, playing one six to eight hour session once a week. Maybe they played slow, but regardless, that's a hell of a lot of campaign stuff to put in one book. In 2006, Gaming Report called the fifth edition of Pendragon one of the best retreads of 2006. In 2007, after more than 20 years in print, Pendragon got a spot in the book Hobby Games, the Top 100. Shannon Applecline stated that, quote, King Arthur Pendragon could be lauded as a top role-playing game solely based on the innovation it brought to the industry. Its concentration on epic storytelling and its traits mechanic were both notable and original when the game was released in 1985. However, even today, Pendragon remains vital. It provides a picture-perfect model of literary knighthood and, through its well-crafted and well-considered design, effortlessly conjures its theme. End quote. Also in 2007, the Great Pendragon Campaign won the Diana Jones Award for Excellence in Gaming. In 2008, White Wolf released a softcover reprint of Pendragon, but this would be the last release for this game under their watch. 
Nocturnal Media picked up the rights to Pendragon in 2009 and almost immediately set out to get their own version of the game out. However, rather than completing total overhauls of the system, they instead chose twice to make minor adjustments to the rules. This led to the release of 5.1 in 2010, followed by 5.2 in 2016. Nocturnal Media also decided to expand the Pendragon universe. In 2017, they kickstarted Paladin, Warriors of Charlemagne. The game utilized the Pendragon rule system and was also set in medieval times. However, instead of medieval Britain, Paladin was set in medieval Europe and the players were young Frankish squires or knights in the service of Charlemagne. The Kickstarter was a roaring success, earning $83,000 US on a goal of ten grand, and was ultimately released by Chaosium, who got the rights to Pendragon back in 2018. They also took control of Paladin and now offer both games for sale. However, 2018 also saw the loss of Pendragon's greatest champion with the passing of Greg Stafford. At the time of his passing, according to Chaosium's website, he'd been hard at work for nearly eight years on a massive redesign of Pendragon, and many feared it would never see the light of day. However, the company refused to let the vision of their founder die with him, and they released a quick start preview of the 6th edition in 2020. Chaosium's website does not have an official release date for 6th edition listed, but with the quick start rules out, it's safe to say we should see it sometime in 2022. Now, before we break down the specifics of Pendragon, I wanted to get one more part of the production line out there for you. When Green Knight Publishing got control of the game, they decided to roll out a line of fiction books utilizing the subject matter. James Lauder was hired on to be the executive editor of the line in 1999, and the following books were released. Arthur, the Bear of Britain by Edward Franklin in 1998. To the Chapel Perilous by Naomi Mitchison in 1999, and this was actually a reprint of a 1955 release. Kinsman of the Grail by Dorothy James Roberts in 2000. It was a reprint of the 1963 book. The Life of Sir Aglavale by Clements Houseman in 2000. This was a reprint of the 1905 edition. The Doom of Camelot, an original anthology edited by Lauder and released in 2000. The Arthurian Conspiracy by Phyllis Ann Carr in 2001. Also in 2001, Exiled from Camelot by Cherith Baldry. Also in 2001, The Pagan King by Edison Marshall. This was a reprint of the 1959 version. The Follies of Sir Harold by Phyllis Ann Carr in 2001. Pendragon by W. Barnard Faraday in 2002. Also in 2002, Legends of the Pendragon. That was another original anthology edited by Lauder. And finally, Percival and the Presence of God by Jim Hunter in 2007. And yes, I noticed that a book was released in 2007 by Green Knight after the White Wolf deal had been made to take over the property. The deal is that this novel was published by Green Knight and that was part of the arrangement made with White Wolf. So there. There was one more reprint in there that was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be a reprint of William Henry Babcock's 1898 novel, Sign of the Chariots. It was supposed to happen in 2002, but that novel still has not seen the light of day. Okay, so we're into our ninth page of script at about 2,400 words into today's show, and we're finally going to get into the setting and gameplay for Pendragon. 
Thanks for sticking with me to this point. Pendragon has, as I've mentioned in the past, a literary basis. Specifically, the Arthurian romance Le Mort d'Arthur, the 15th century Arthurian romance. Pendragon does, for the most part, an excellent job of staying true to its source material, which cannot be said for the majority of role-playing games with a literary basis. What really sets it apart from other games, whether inside this genre or not, is the fact that adventures tend to be political, military, or spiritual in nature, rather than the stereotypical dungeon crawl. In fact, the published supplement adventures for the game are presented as taking place congruently with events from Arthurian legend. And that's another important thing to note. The game designers had no desire or intention of having the characters in a Pendragon campaign actually meet or adventure alongside Arthur or any of his legendary band. The characters in a Pendragon game have probably heard of these folks, but they're busy doing their own thing and trying to make their way through life. And life is a big part of Pendragon. In fact, the time between adventures is a huge part of the game. Players actually play out maintaining their estates, getting married, getting older, having children, and having all the experiences that go along with all of those things. I know I mentioned this a while back when I touched on Pendragon during the gaming timeline, but it bears repeating and expanding on here. Typically, there will be one adventure per year. That means that campaigns can and will carry across generations which means that the players, by marrying and having children, will literally be creating their own replacement characters as their original characters die of old age or from wounds in battle, because that's a legit possibility. Now, I should also know that players can choose voluntarily to retire their character, especially when they're at the age that most men and women of the time would retire from the act of life. In researching today's episode, I checked out a lot of reports from Pendragon players, and it was actually about an 80% majority who'd reported retiring at least one character during a campaign for this reason. They admitted they'd rather retire a favorite character than watch him go out on their shield, and they knew that their adventuring would be in good hands with the heir or heirs they produced. Now, if you've been paying attention to my past game descriptions, you understand this idea is completely the opposite of most role-playing games out there. I mean, D&D is practically set up to chew up and spit out characters, especially if you're playing with a hack-and-slash style. And playing a generational game in that rule set? Most D&D players I know are lucky if their campaign lasts six months. Having the patience to play for several years possibly would drive them up a wall. Now, that being said, I do know of some groups who do this. In fact, I read about a group in Minnesota that had been playing the same campaign for like 20 years. As the characters age, they pass on their knowledge and their gear to their children or nieces or nephews or whomever and just keep playing on. Those games are the exception, however, rather than the rule. But that being said, I wonder how the crew at Critical Role would handle Pendragon. Well, anyway, Pendragon can be said to have almost directly influenced Ars Magica, which released its first edition two years after Pendragon and uses some of the same philosophy in its gameplay and style. The default Pendragon setting is a celebration and melding of actual 5th and 6th century British history, High Medieval history, which is the 10th to 15th centuries, and Arthurian legend. An example of the realism of the game plays out in the political forces at play in the setting. The Celts fighting Germanic, Irish, and Pictish invaders after the fall of Roman influence in the area. However, it should be noted that technology, along with some aspects of culture, progress in a much more accelerated fashion. 
Tops on this is that King Arthur's Britain is presented as thoroughly feudal, which was definitely not the case in reality. We also see the unique coats of arms, knights jousting in tournaments and following the codes of chivalry and courtly love. That would be anachronistic to the actual period of history, but it works really well for the game setting. That's why it's there. It should also be noted that most of the campaign events and personalities came from the mass of Arthurian literature produced from the Middle Ages through the 20th century. However, several sources have also noted that if a GM is willing to put in a little bit more work, this game would work just fine if you set it in the Dark Ages. Or you can dial up a more fantastic version of the Arthurian legend and take Pendragon for a spin in that. Now, let's take a look under the hood and see how Pendragon runs. The basic mechanics of Pendragon are based at least in part on the basic role-playing system. That makes sense, actually, since basic role-playing was developed by Craig Stafford for Chaosium in 1980. Think of BRP in the same way you'd think of GURPS or Savage Worlds. BRP was designed to be a basic set of rules you could hang any sort of game on, and Chaosium has done that very thing for the last 40 years. BRP is percentile-based, which means that your number ranges will be between 1 and 100, and the dice you'll roll are your D10 and percentile dice. You know, that little one with the double zero and 90 on it. The GM will have charts and or information to let them know what the target numbers are that you're trying to reach, and you'll, of course, utilize bonuses from abilities and or skills with your rolls. Now, skills and abilities are pretty much the same as in most other systems. BRP uses size, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, power, and either appearance or charisma, depending on the game. From those, the character gets scores in various skills, which are expressed as percentages, thus necessitating the percentile dice. BRP also treats armor and defenses as separate functions, as the act of parrying a blow is a defensive skill because it reduces the opponent's ability to land a successful hit, while the purpose of armor is to absorb the damage you actually take. And I know my buddy Jim loves this as an idea for game systems and is pissed that more systems don't do that. One more BRP thing is that most of the games played under this system make no distinction between the player's race systems and the monsters or opponents. The only thing that is necessitated is an adjustment to ability scores. If you're interested in checking out more on this, you can get it for free from Chaosium as they released it as a system reference document in 2020. So, after all of that, one of the first things Pendragon changes from the BRP is the fact that skills are resolved with a D20 rather than percentile dice. Yep, after all of that, I'm going to change something I told you. Sorry. When it comes to traits in Pendragon, there are 13 opposing values that make up a character's personality. They are chaste, lustful, energetic, lazy, forgiving, vengeful, generous, selfish, Honest, deceitful. Just, arbitrary. Merciful, cruel. Modest, proud. Pious, worldly. Prudent, reckless. Temperate, indulgent. Trusting, suspicious. Valorous, cowardly. Now, in each of those pairs, the first one is considered a virtue, while the second is a vice. The traits consist of 20 points split between the two values. That means you could have an even 10-10 split, or swing one way or the other, so long as the total of the two does not exceed 20. What that means is that, for example, if you wanted to have a 19 in chaste, your lustful must be a 1. 
When starting, characters have a base of 15-5 and Valorous Cowardly due to being heroes, a base of 13-7 in their religious views due to being the good guys, and an even 10-10 split in the other 11. They can adjust them how they see fit during character creation, though it's strongly encouraged to leave the first two alone. So when playing the game, you'd roll a d20 to use a virtue or resist a vice. For example, if you were in a position where you had your mortal enemy captive, you might make a check to see if you'd be merciful to them. If your roll is equal to or less than the value, you succeed. However, if you go over the number, you'd be cruel to them instead, which could cause issues for your character depending on the situation. The same holds true for resisting a vice. If your roll succeeds, you resist. If you don't, well... By the way, bonuses are given on chivalry rolls. If you're total on the chivalry side, energetic, generous, forgiving, just, modest, temperate, and valorous are 80 or above. Conversely, if your totals on those traits opposites are 80 or more, you take a penalty to chivalry rolls. So plan accordingly, character creation. The Christian religious virtues are chaste, forgiving, merciful, modest, and temperate. If you have at least one of these virtues at 16 or higher, you gain a religion bonus. The romantic virtues are forgiving, generous, honest, just, merciful, and trusting. If the point totals for these are 65 or above, you get a bonus to romance rolls. Now, the creators decided in later versions of the games that not every player would want to be a Christian, so they created three non-Christian virtue sets. Heathen, that's vengeful, honest, arbitrary, proud, and worldly, that was meant to represent the Saracens and the Picts. Pagan, Lustful, energetic, generous, honest, and proud. This was meant to cover British and Welsh pagans. Wotanic, generous, honest, proud, worldly, reckless, and indulgent. This covered Germanic and Scandinavian pagans. As another example of just how serious Pendragon takes interpersonal relationships, the game mechanics include passions. Passions are considered higher values, and they're supposed to influence a character's behavior. You generate them by rolling either 2d6 plus 6 or 3d6 and adding or subtracting various modifiers. Passion checks are just like trait checks in that you roll a d20 for them. However, should you fail one of these, your character goes into melancholy for violating one of their core beliefs. If you critically fail the check or fail your check to get out of the melancholy, you can go into madness, and at that point, your character will be forced to retire until either the character can be redeemed or forgiven by those who were wronged. Or you can leave the character retired and leave that thread hanging. But I don't see many GMs, or players from that matter, leaving something like that unresolved. So since we've been going into deep detail, what exactly are these passions? Loyalty is the sense of duty to obey a liege, ally, or friend. Love is the feeling of affection for another person or people the character has a strong emotional tie to. Love of family is an affection for family members. The rules note that this is common for daughters and firstborn sons. A little misogynistic if you ask me, but I didn't write the rules. Hospitality is the courtesy of providing shelter, lodging, and protection towards a guest. Honor is a sense of duty towards following the rules of proper and noble behavior. Later editions added two more. Amour is romantic love for a person, which would replace love when it's your lover. Hate is the obsessive dislike for a person, a nation, or a race. 
Passions can and usually are used to create the potential for conflict. One of the easiest examples of this would be for a hospitable host to have to offer protection to a rude and or discourteous guest or an enemy of theirs. They might abuse the custom just to see how it plays out. Okay, so I hit on magic in the game earlier. Only the fourth edition of Pendragon had mechanics for magic and magician characters. None of the others did because the rules presumed characters would be knights or ladies and magic was restricted to NPCs and quite frankly, pretty much considered to be used quote unquote off screen. Therefore, unless you're going to dig up a copy of the fourth edition rules, you won't be playing a magician in Pendragon. Sorry. All right. So knowing what we know, let's hit on one more part of the process. Character creation. The first three editions of Pendragon allowed for random character generation from a variety of cultures of both Great Britain and Western Europe, and there were a ton of supplements produced to support this. However, the core rules for 5th edition only supports point-based creation of young land-holding knights from the default homeland of Salisbury. For the record, Salisbury was the preferred homeland for 3rd and 4th editions as well. Greg Stafford saw a potential issue here, though, and self-published The Book of Knights and Ladies in 2008. His goal was to allow for a more diverse pool for character creation in 5th edition. Now, I mentioned that there were a ton of supplements over the years that helped flesh out different groups for character creation. In the spirit of fairness, I'll mention a few of them just in case you were going with different versions of the game so that you can have that broad base you'll want for your campaign. 1991 saw the publishing of Savage Mountains, which brought Cambria, or Wales, into the game. 1992's Perilous Forest added Cumbria, Northwest Britain, and Northumberland, Northeast Britain. Blood and Lust from 1995 added the lands of Lindsay, East Anglia, Middle Anglia, Mercia, Wessex, and the Saxon shore of Essex, Sussex, and Kent. Hell, but why stop there? 1994's Pagan Shore added Ireland with its diverse bands to the game. 1995's Beyond the Wall brought Scotland to the table in form of Pictland, which is what it was called at that time. Scandinavia and the Nordic areas of Britain circa Beowulf were represented in the land of giants, which dropped in 1996. And finally, for my list anyway, Saxons came out in 1999. Anglo-Saxon England, that'd be Southeast Britain. Jute, Jutland, Angle, Schleswig Holstein, Frisian, Friesland, Saxon, Germany, and Frankish, France. And I jacked a ton of those pronunciations up, I'm sure. I apologize. Look, beyond that, there are multiple adventure and campaign supplements out there. But for the sake of time, I'll refer you to Chaosium's website as well as drivethroughrpg.com. Now, I have to admit, I've never had the chance to play Pendragon. That being said, it's a game that's been on my wish list for a very long time, but it would require the rest of my table to learn yet another entirely different set of rules than what they're used to, as well as being willing to go long stretches of time without combat. There was a time I would have said that was impossible, but these days, I think we might be ready. In fact, even though I've had Pendragon on the topic list for this podcast since day one, it was my friend and gamer at my table, Monica Gentleman, who asked me to, quote, hurry the hell up and get this game on the podcast. So maybe by this time next year, I can do an episode giving you my personal take on the game. Better yet, if you have your take on the game, email me. 
We can either share your story on the podcast or, better yet, have a conversation for the YouTube channel. Either way, I'd love to hear what you think about Pendragon. And with that, we come to the end of our tour. So, I know I've said a lot about doing things with the Christmas holiday in mind, but I also know that we have listeners from all over the world and representing numerous different faiths. So, I wanted to take a second to wish you a happy and healthy holiday during whichever of the 14 or so different holidays celebrated during this time of year. I also acknowledge that this episode is dropping on Christmas Eve, so a very Merry Christmas to you. May your holiday be pleasant, and may you get to spend it with the people you care the most about. Okay, so next week we were going to discuss the worst role-playing games ever released. However, I kind of felt dirty just looking at some of them, so I've called an audible for the podcast. Next week, we're going to be looking at mini-RPGs, or games that only have a few pages of rules. I got this from an article I snagged off my Facebook feed, so uh, this is going to be an education for me as well as it'll hopefully be for you. Now, the thought of tossing a whole bunch of research that I did just didn't work for me, so I'm going to do a second podcast. We're going to cover the worst role-playing games ever, but I'm going to make it as an audio-only YouTube exclusive. It's going to drop at midnight central time next Friday morning. So if you're a YouTube subscriber, you're going to get two brand new podcasts next week to close out 2021. So there you go. As always, the music we use for this podcast comes from pixabay.com. Hit them up if you need music for your project. Of course, this podcast wouldn't be where it is or what it is without you. The fact that you've supported us for 31 episodes is a big thing, and I cannot thank you enough. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Role Playing History Podcast, Twitter, at Role Playing P, YouTube, Role Playing History Podcast, and you know what to do when you get there. Email us, roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so next week we look at small rules RPGs on this feed and the worst role-playing games ever as a YouTube exclusive. And when you listen to the YouTube show, you will understand why I had to make that call. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and you're...